Turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, and if you are visiting today, we are so thankful that you are here. We have made it our practice to read and preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. God gave us whole books, and so if we're going to get the context and understand the whole message of a book, we need to study it verse by verse. So we preach consecutively and expositorily through books of the Bible. And we're in the study of Hebrews right now, Hebrews chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 12 and 13. And this is sort of part two of what we began last week on the powerful word of God. I'm going to preach a sermon that I've entitled Your Bible, which is the piercing and the judging word of God. Follow with me as I read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Here's what the word of God says. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You all know, but let me remind you that we at Christ Fellowship Bible Church are entirely committed to counseling with the word of God. You know that we preach the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, well, we counsel The Word of God as well. The Bible, the Word of God, is entirely sufficient for every single thing that you will face in your life. For you to know God, for you to obey God, for you to glorify God in your life, everything that you need for life and for godliness is found in the sufficient Word of God. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So God did not leave anything out of the Bible that you need to know. You don't need to run to worldly wisdom You don't need to run to secular psychology. You do not need to run to integrationalist counseling. You don't need to run to self-help books. You don't need to go to Google, and you certainly don't need to go to Siri to try to find answers for life and for godliness. We have all that we need in the Word of God. All that we need in this book. That's why Psalm 119 says, the sum of your word is truth. The sum of God's word is truth. The Bible gives us the sufficient solution for life because the Bible will always lead the people of God to the sufficient and the sovereign solution to all of our issues, and that's Jesus Christ. So when we counsel with the word of God, we don't just give a 10-step formula. It's not as though here's a a magic self-help book that's going to solve the problems. We counsel by pointing people to the person, 
of Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the word of God. And this is the doctrine of the sufficiency of the Bible. But I have to tell you by way of introduction that this book that you have on your lap, the Bible, the scriptures, has undergone many, many attacks through church history. And praise be to God, it has toweringly triumphed over all of those attacks. But let me just give you a few of the attacks that have come upon the Bible in recent centuries. I'll begin first with rationalism. Rationalism in the 17th century was the thinking that you obtain knowledge merely by your own human reasoning. So human reasoning is kind of the chief source of knowledge. And so if you held to this ideology of rationalism, you then denied the supernatural. That's rationalism. Well, that opened the door to a related attack on the Bible, which is the Enlightenment period. The Enlightenment period in the 1600s, 1700s, it's the power of human reason that just swept through Europe. It came to America. It opened the door to liberalism, denying the supernatural, saying that you have all that you need in your own rationale in your own thinking, by your own human reasoning. Well, then related to that, and after that, comes another attack on the Bible, and it's what we call existentialism. Existentialism. You find meaning in your own experience. Well, I don't think that's true because I haven't experienced it. How do I know that what you're saying to me, Christian, from the Bible is true because I haven't experienced it? It's sort of an elevation and an idolatry of experience. Experience reigns supreme in this ideology of existentialism. Well, then that inevitably led to the next attack on the Bible, which is nihilism. Nihilism. We all know the name Frederick Nietzsche. He said God is dead in the 1800s, early 1900s. God is dead. God is meaningless. God is unknowable. And so if that's the case, all things do not have any eternal significance. That is another attack on the Bible that came in the 18 and 1900s. Well, then that just opens the door then for another attack which still is around today, but it's the attack of pragmatism. Pragmatism. You know, whatever works for me is what I'm going to do. I will do whatever works. Whatever's going to achieve the intended result that I want, I will do it. That's pragmatism. Like the Prayer of Jabez book that came out a couple of decades ago. The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. The Purpose Driven Church. These are pragmatism works. Attacks on the true and sufficient word of God. Well, then if you have the pragmatism movement, then that just led to the postmodernism movement. The postmodernism movement, which essentially was the mantra, your truth is fine for you and my truth is fine for me. Your truth and my truth doesn't matter if they agree or disagree. What works for you is fine and what works for me is fine. That was in the 1900s and then coming into the 2000s. But I think now we're into a new era. All of that has just sort of laid the foundation for the current attack that is just plaguing evangelicalism. It's plaguing America. It's plaguing the whole world. And we could call it the movement of self-ism. 
Self-ism. It comes from 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. That in the last days difficult times will come because people will be lovers of self. Man has become God in his own thinking. Man is his own authority. Man is his own identity. Man can define who he wants to be, how he wants to identify, how he wants to present himself. Man is his own self-autonomous being. We are living in that day of self-ism. And all of these attacks that I have given you, kind of spanning history in the last four or five hundred years, these are direct full-fronted attacks on the Bible. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, we have to ask the question, is the Bible clear? Is the Bible inerrant? Is it inspired? Is the Bible true? Is the Bible supernatural? Is the Bible trustworthy? Is the Bible the authority? I mean, the only authority. Is the Bible really sufficient for all that I need in life and godliness? Well, the answer to all of those is yes. Yes, it is. The Bible is entirely sufficient. God raised up a man by the name of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 23, verse 28, God said to the prophet, Let the one who has my word speak my word in truth. Whoever has the word of God, speak it forth in truth. And so the Bible is so filled with truth about itself, claiming and proclaiming and testifying and proving its own authority. The word of God is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3. It is full of divine promises, 2 Corinthians 1. The Bible is pure and refined as if through a furnace seven times, Psalm 12 tells us. The word of God is that which produces the fear of the Lord and endures forever, Psalm 19 tells us. The word of God keeps you back from sin, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. It is the Bible that gives you confidence as you read it and pray it from Daniel 9. And we know that it is the Bible that gives comfort to the hurting, Psalm 119. And it gives you direction in your life, according to Psalm 25. What we're looking at in our section today is the authority of the word of God. We are looking at the nature of the Word of God. We are looking at the power of the Word of God. And last week, you'll remember, if you look in your Bible at Hebrews 4.12, we saw that the Word of God is living. The Word of God is living. We saw that there is an efficacy to the Word of God. It actually accomplishes what God wants it to do. It never fails. The word of God never fails. I could make a promise to you and you could make a promise to me and our promises might fail. But God's cannot. God's cannot. There is an efficacy to the word. But today we're going to look at the next part of verse 12, which is the sufficiency of the word of God. There is a sufficient reality to the Bible. There's a, there's a critical nature of the Bible where it, it shines the spotlight into deep recesses of our heart and it exposes who we really are and it shows us who we really show ourselves to be and it reveals our thoughts. 
The Bible is efficacious. The Bible is sufficient. And then we're going to see next week that there is an authority in the word of God as well because it stands in judgment over us. I love going to college campuses and telling young people, you're not in authority over God. God is in authority over you. So have you read your Bible? Have you read what God says about you? Because you're not in the judges trying to make the conclusion what is right and wrong. God is in the judges seat. He is the one who has declared right and wrong. But we need to understand what he says in the word. So last week we began the study. We're going to continue it today and the next week we'll complete it. I want to give you four unrivaled glories of the word of God. I want to sort of put the spotlight, as it were, on the Bible and give you four unrivaled glories. I mean, there is nothing in all the world that is more powerful than this book. Nothing in all of the world. And I want to show that to you as we look into God's word together. Here are the four glories. Remember last week we saw number one, that the word is living. It is living. We saw that last week. Today I want to show you number two, the word is piercing. It is piercing. Number three, we will then look at the word is judging. It is judging. And then next week, number four, we will see that the word is exposing. It is exposing. But just by way of review, remember last week we saw number one, the word of God is living. It is a living word. It is an active word. It is an effectual word. It is a successful word. The word of God never fails. It never fails. We call it the infallibility of the Bible. The promises of God can never, ever fail. It is the inerrant word of the God, of, of the Lord. It is without error because it comes from the God of truth. So when you open the Bible and you read the Bible, you are learning from the mouth of God. Whenever the Bible is read, God is speaking. Does God speak? Sure does. But only by and with the word of God. Never apart from the word, but only with the word. The word is living. But let, here's the second, the second unrivaled glory. Yes, it is living. We saw that number one. Now, number two, it is piercing. The word of God is piercing. And your Bible is open. Look at verse 12 because, because I want you to see the amazing reality of verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And here's what it does. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. This verse teaches us, among many others, the truth that God's word is enough. We hold tightly to the sufficiency of the word of God. If I could just say it one more time, church family, we don't need worldly wisdom at all. We don't need secular psychology at all. We don't need the DSM for guidance about matters through life at all. We don't need the therapeutic helps that are out there. We don't need them. Dr. John Street of Biblical Counseling at the Masters University, this professor said this, quote, using psychology from the world for soul care is like dressing your cancer with band-aids. 
It may temporarily relieve a pain, perhaps, or maybe even mask a symptom, but secular, worldly psychology can never penetrate the issues of the heart. Only the Word of God, only the Word of God can do that. It's only the scriptures, it's only God's revealed word that has the power to pierce deep into the human heart. Now, when we come to verse 12, the text says it is living and active and sharper than a sword. We saw that last week. And yet it pierces. Now, that action in the Greek translation, that word piercing, is a word that means to pass from one physical location to another. I think of it like a missile, you know, going from one location all the way to another. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God is so powerful that it pierces deep into the very being of all men and women. And, 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 the, and the author continues to give clarity. Well, what do you mean it pierces? How deep does it go? How does it pierce? How far? Verse 12. He's going to give a couple of figures of speech. The division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. Now, listen carefully with this. The author is not trying to give a psychological lesson. He's not trying to give a physiological lesson about the human body. All he's doing is giving a spiritual revelation. He's not thinking about man's anthropological makeup. Is man uh, dividing between soul and spirit? And let's find the minutia between a joint and a marrow. And let's let's try to get caught up in all of that. that. That would miss the point of what the author is doing. He's not talking about the physiological makeup of the human body. Rather, the author is merely using a figure of speech to say that God's revelational power is so able to cut deep into the innermost part of your being. I mean, it goes to the core of your being. It goes to the innermost depth of your being. The Bible has such power that it pierces the deepest fabric of who you are and why you do what you do. We understand this. We see this all over the Word of God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 33, Peter is preaching in the temple courts, and those who heard his sermon were cut to the quick. What does that mean? They were convicted by what they heard from the expounding of the word of God. They were convicted. A little bit later on, there's a man named Stephen who's giving a long sermon of the whole history of Israel in Acts 7. And at the end of it, Acts 7.54, those who heard him were cut to the quick. What does that mean? They were pierced and convicted in the innermost part of their being. In 1 Corinthians 14.24, when a non-believer comes into the worship service and the word of God is being rightly read and exposited, it's the word prophecy, but it's the idea of preaching, the word is going forth, all the unbelievers will fall down and be convicted and say, God is certainly among you. Why? Because there's a piercing nature of the word of God where it cuts 
to the innermost parts of your being. Negatively, in the Old Testament, there was a man by the name of Asa. He was the king of ancient Judah, 2 Chronicles 16. And there was a prophet who came and rebuked the king because the king did not trust the Lord at one military endeavor. And Asa the king was convicted and angry with the prophet and threw him in jail. Oh, he was convicted. He was pierced, but he didn't respond positively to the piercing nature of the word of God. Word of God tells us in 2 Kings chapter 17 that ancient Israel went to exile because they did not listen to the Lord, but they stiffened their neck. They heard the word. They were pierced by the word, but they stiffened their neck and they were not convicted, which led them to true faith in the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 7 and Jeremiah chapter 17 tells us that God's people of old, Israel and Judah, they stiffened their necks and they did not hear and they did not obey my words. Why? Because the word has such power, it pierces to the innermost part of your being. But there are some who are pierced and they are convicted, but they do not respond in humble faith. But praise the Lord positively. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached to all those thousands of people on that day, they were pierced to the heart and they said, what must we do? And Peter told them to repent and then to be baptized and their sins would be washed away. What's the point of all of this? That's the power of the word of God. The word of God has the ability to pierce deep. It cuts deep into the deepest fabric of who you are. No psychology, no DSM, no self-help book, no therapy, no secular psychologist can ever do that. But you, Christian, can because you have the word of God. Well, who does this work? I mean, who is it who does the piercing work of the word of God? How does it show itself effectual in the lives of God's people? That is one of the beautiful and blessed ministries of God, the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, the Lord Jesus tells us about this. John chapter 16 and in verse 8, Jesus said, And he, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Who has the power and the ability and the almighty grace from God to cut deeply into our hearts? But the Holy Spirit and him alone. I think of it like an x-ray. The piercing nature of the word is kind of like an x-ray. You think of an x-ray, a chest x-ray, a a focused beam of radiation that looks into your heart, that looks in your lungs, that looks in your bones, that looks at a part of your body, almost like an imaging test revealing what's on the inside. That's what the word of God does. Or maybe we could even use a military illustration. Imagine militarily the laser weapon system that would fire a a, a silent near-infrared beam to shoot down a drone or deliver what might be called a hard kill. What has the power to do that? Like a laser light, a laser light that could shoot down and kill 
within the defense realm. What can do that? Whether it's an x-ray, whether it's something militarily, what can do that? How much more spiritually to our heart but the word of God? Only the scriptures can do the spiritual x-ray on our hearts. That's what the Bible does. That's what the Bible alone can do. And yet a man might say, yeah, I have a Bible. I've gone to church. I've been there. I've done that. I've read the Bible many times before. Christian, I've been there. I've read the Bible many times and it hasn't changed me. To which a Christian might respond and say, yeah, but if you let the Bible go through you, you'll have a different testimony. Many times people go through God's word and they read it, but they leave unchanged. But the power of the Holy Spirit works in such a way that it really does pierce deep. You've been there, right? You understand that? The word of God is so sharp and so piercing that it cuts through the hardest, the hardest, the hardest. Not granite, not diamonds, not steel, not a metal but something way, way, way harder than all of that. The word of God is so powerful and piercing that it cuts through the hardness of the human heart. The word of God has that power. Jeremiah 23, is not my word like a hammer, God says. Is not my word like a fire? It can break the hardest of proud hearts. Jeremiah 23. You say, Jeff, I understand that. I get the reality here, these unrivaled realities of the word of God, that it's living and it's piercing. Yeah, but consider all the implications of this. What does it mean for me and you in our lives? Well, you want to change. There's that sin that you keep going to. There's that temptation that comes again and you want to fight it and you want to resist it. There's that habit in your life that you know, I've got to get rid of that. How do you change? It's like a parent who says, oh, I would love for my children to change. How do the youngest of children change? It's not by behavioral methods that a dad and mom may inflict on a child. It's by the heart-piercing reality ultimately of the Spirit of God working with His Word. Somebody might say, yeah, I want my teenager to change. I want my rebellious teenagers to come to God and to know Him. Well, how does that happen? But through the piercing nature of the Word of God. Somebody might say, I want my attitude to change. Another person might say, I want my marriage to change. Somebody might say, I want my time management to change. The piercing nature of the word is what cuts deep into the innermost part of our being so that we are changed and we are transformed. What is the solution to all of these scenarios? Use and wield and utilize the word of God more. We have such a powerful weapon. It's available. God has given it. It's complete. It's sufficient. It's understandable. It's clear. You have it right there on your lap. 
In our church, we want our church to be strong. We want our church to be immovable and discerning. We want our church to be bold. We want our church to be a place where the truth of God is upheld and where error is exposed and rejected. What do we do to cultivate and sustain that but preach and teach and love and live the word? The word of God. The word of God is piercing. It pierces. But let me give you a couple of additional implications of all of this. Number one, there's a warning. There's a warning. Men and women must beware of opposing the word of God. There are some who hinder the preaching of the word of God. That is a warning to not hinder men from preaching the word. There's another implication. If God's word is this piercing, then number two, we must hear it well. Don't disregard the word of God. Don't ignore the word of God. Don't fail to apply the word of God. Don't sit under the preaching of the word of God as if it's just another dull thing. But to hear it well. Third, we must mortify. We must mortify our sins. We need to apply God's word, which he has given to us, to our sins diligently and specifically and individually because the word of God is like a sword that we can thrust into our sin and put those things to death. Because the word of God is so piercing, there's a word here to all who are in this place without Christ. You ought to fear. You ought to fear. If you're an unbeliever here today, you ought to fear greatly. You ought to be trembling today. Because the sword of God's word is so powerful and so clear and so penetrating and so heart revealing that it will cast you into eternal destruction, according to Psalm 7, verse 12. Christian, you're here today. You ought to be armed. You ought to be armed because we have the sword of the word always ready. We can defend ourselves against the temptations of the evil one. We can repel all the enemies by wielding the sword of the word rightly. Christian, let's be bold. Another implication, let's be bold. We have the authority of the sword of the word. Let's wield it and speak it and proclaim it with authority. Because God has spoken in his word. One more implication, Christian, what we ought to do is we ought to feast upon God's word. Why? We ought to read it, love it, enjoy it, meditate, memorize, sing the word, pray the word, reflect the word, talk about the word. Why? Because it is God's word that is a joy and a delight to our hearts. You want to know how piercing the word of God is. I'll tell you a story. I, I love George Whitfield. It was a couple years ago. I was flying home from Asia, coming home from seeing our missionaries, and I was reading the biographies, uh, the two-volume biography of George Whitfield. And there was a story in there about how Whitfield was preaching. He was an 18th century evangelist in the Great Awakening. And he preached in England, and then he came and he preached along the Atlantic seacoast as well. And on one occasion, he had been preaching, and there was a group of hecklers that were there. And they were loud, and they were mean, and they were vulgar, and they were blasphemous. In fact, they called themselves the Hellfire Club. 
So they were there when Whitfield was preaching, and they heard the whole thing, and then the sermon was finished, and Whitfield left, and the crowd dispersed. One of the leaders of this Hellfire Club was a man by the name of Thorpe. Well, Thorpe gets up with his group of friends, and he begins to mock Whitfield, and he mocks God, and he mocks the Word of God, and he begins to preach the sermon that Whitfield just preached, but in a very mocking kind of a way. I mean, just blasphemous and, and belittling and ridiculing, but just so brazen in his unbelief, ridiculing, but with great recollection, he preached the whole sermon. I mean, the main points and the illustrations and the verses and all that, until the story goes, one time near the very end of this mockery, his tone and his facial expression changed because God had converted him while he had intended to mock the preaching of the word of God. It's the piercing nature of the word. It is the powerful nature of the word. It cuts deep. What are these unrivaled realities of the word of God? We saw, number one, it's living. We saw, number two, that it is piercing. But now I must give you a third. If you're taking notes, jot this word down. The word is judging. It is judging. When you understand the Bible rightly, I think we can agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones, you will get a serious view of life. It's one of the main words of the book of Titus. It's the word sober-minded. And the word sober-minded could just be translated from the Greek, serious. That's what the word of God does. It's what the gospel does. It, It makes a man, it makes a woman, it makes a child serious about the things of the Lord and serious about life. Because the word of God is judging. Look at the end of verse 12. You see it here. It not only is the word is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, but it is able to judge. Do you see it here in verse 12? It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I mean, this is the unbeliever's favorite verse in all the Bible. Don't judge lest you be judged. We hear it all the time, every week when we're sharing the gospel. Don't judge. To which the Christian says, I'm not. God already has pronounced judgment, and we're all guilty. He's revealed his judgment in the Bible. I'm not judging. I'm preaching. We're all guilty. The word of God is the judge. It means that your Bible is the judge. Actually, you'll know the Greek word. If I read you the Greek word, it's the word critic. The Bible is your critic. It's your critic. It judges you. It criticizes you. It discerns you. I mean, that's why many people are critical of the Bible, because the Bible criticizes them. It is the Bible that passes judgment on our thoughts. It passes judgment on our intentions, on our motivations, on our purposes. And yet it is the Bible that shows us who we really are. Go to a university campus. 
go outside of a psychology department and tell them, here's why you get angry. Here's why you are fearful. Here's why you are so anxious about life. I've got the answer. I know where it comes from, from the word of God. We see the answers in the word of God. It reveals our hearts. It exposes our hearts. It excavates our hearts. It examines our hearts. It explains the real you. What I love about that is we're living in a twisted culture where people are confused who they really are. But Christian, we can read them the word and we can tell them, I know exactly who you are. Not because I know everything, but because God has revealed it in the word. There's no scalpel of a doctor that can discover the innermost part of man. There's no rocket of a military that can enter the innermost part of man's thoughts. There's no psychology or DSM that could ever discern it. There's no yoga or therapy or Eastern meditation that could ever reach the innermost part of man's thoughts. Only the Bible Only the Bible can pierce through to this intangible but real realm. Only the Bible can do it. Did you notice the wording at the end of verse 12? Did you notice how the author says that after it is the piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, it is able to judge? The Bible is competent to judge. It is able and competent to criticize and to discern and to reveal the, look at verse 12, the thoughts and the intentions of your heart, not the beating muscle in your chest. It's not that physical organ. This is what the Bible describes as the inner man. It's the heart here is the mission control center of your life. It's your thoughts. It's your intentions. It is the word here in verse 12 for thoughts refers to your inner considerations on the inside, your thoughts, your motivations, your purposes, your intentions, why you do what you do. The next word after that is related to it for intention, but it specifically refers to the formations of the intentions of your mind. Why do you think what you think? Why do you desire what you desire? Why do you do what you do? Why did you say what you say? Why do you react the way that you react? Why are you living the way that you're living? What are the thoughts and the intentions and the purposes of your life? I mean, what is it that can reveal that? Look, the secular world doesn't have the answer to that. Why? Because the secularist evolutionary believing world doesn't have God in their theology system. So they don't understand God, they don't understand sin, they don't understand man's makeup and man's sinfulness and the only hope provided in Christ. What reveals your thoughts? 
What reveals your desires? What reveals your intentions? What reveals your cravings? What reveals your motivations? What reveals your wants and your longings and your aspirations? I mean, people say, I'm just addicted to this. Well, no, the Bible says you're in bondage to this. Somebody say, well, I I have a disorder. I've been diagnosed with this illness. Well, if we look at it according to the Bible, oftentimes, no, it's sin. Because it reveals the desires of your heart. For example, if the word of God is so powerful that it judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, if the Bible really is judging, then we need to realize this. Why do you quarrel? Why do you fight? Why do you bicker? Dads and moms, we want to know the answer to that question as well. Why do the kids quarrel and fight and bicker? But it's not just for them, it's for us. James 4 says it's because of your own heart desires. Well, why do you get angry? We are really professional at rewording that. I'm frustrated. Let's just call it what the Bible describes it. I'm sinfully angry in this moment. Where does that come from? Well, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9 in Mark 7 says it comes from within, and that's what defiles a man. Why do I grumble? Why do I complain? Why am I discontent? Well, it's because I'm really discontent at what God is doing in this moment in my life. And I think God has made a mistake. And I think that my way is better, and for that reason, I grumble. According to 1 Corinthians 10. Why do men and women fear? Why are we those that succumb to anxiety? Why do we sin in these ways? Jesus said in Matthew 6 and Philippians 4 says, it's because we don't have faith in God in those moments. Where does sexual immorality come from? Where does fornication come from in all of its forms? Where does it come from? Answer from the Bible, lack of of gratitude. Lack of gratitude. Ephesians 5, 1 to 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, Proverbs 5 to 7. Why do we blame shift? You did this. Well, yeah, but it, it, it's, it's because of my parents. It's because of my environment. It's because of my culture. It's because of this. It's because of that. It's because of these people. Why do we blame shift? Why do we blame shift rather than just own our own sin? Well, Genesis 3 tells us it comes from the sin of our heart. Why are we selfish and not loving God first? And why are we not loving others second? Well, Philippians 2, 1 to 5 tells us that in that moment, we're not thinking the right thoughts in a way that follows Christ, but we're thinking selfishly. Why must I be in control? And why do I have to have things my way and go according to my agenda? Well, Isaiah 55 tells us that God has a perfect plan. And when I resist that, my sin comes out in anger. And on and on we could go. I mean, church family, you get it. You understand it. Why? All of these are found in the Bible and they reveal that our sinful hearts Our sinful cravings, our own thoughts, our own intentions, that's the problem. The Bible, verse 12, see it there? The word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions 
of the hearts. Let's go deeper. If the Bible is your critic and my critic, you know what the law of God says when it looks and exposes who I am? In loud, capital, neon-flashing letters, it says, you're guilty. You're guilty. With me, with you, with all of us. Boys and girls, with you as well, guilty. We're guilty. The word of God is the critic. It discerns. It exposes who we are. It shows our thoughts, our intentions, our desires, our motivations, and why we do what we do. And it's like the Bible just unloads and exposes and excavates all of it. And it says, you're guilty. But then the word points you to a savior. And yes, it says you're guilty. But here's the guiltless one who died in your place. Here's the one who didn't deserve to die, but he did die for sinners. Here's the one who is the perfect God-man who came down from heaven to fully obey the law that you couldn't do for one hour of your life. And the law says you're guilty, but it's an arrow pointing you like a tutor to the one to come. Look at the Savior. Look at what he's done. Maybe you're here today and your guilt is exposed and you think, why do I do what I do? Why am I so angry? Why am I so upset? Why am I so fearful? And you see in the power of the word, your heart is exposed and you think, man, I'm guilty. You need to look to the Savior. Come, trembling sinner, to the Savior. Come, you who are convicted and exposed and guilty by the law, and look upon the God-man who died for sinners. See the one who is our substitute. Realize your own depravity. See the mercy of God revealed in Christ. The perfect atonement accomplished by Jesus. But you know, with all of this, we we understand the word of God is living, it is piercing, it is judging. But Christian, aren't there times in our Christian life where these sinful thoughts come into our mind, right? Right? And we're kind of glad that other people don't know what comes into our mind. Like when a lady sins, she's pregnant out of wedlock. She has that thought, I have no other option but to get an abortion. I have to do this. Or it's like a young man or a young woman who has that thought in his mind, I won't succeed, I won't pass if I don't cheat on this test. Or it's like the person who says, I won't be liked, I won't be noticed, I won't be in the, with the right crowd if I don't dress provocatively and immodestly. Or the person who says, I don't want to lose this relationship I'll compromise my sexual standards and go in and sleep with that person. 
Somebody who says, I, I, I need my job security. If I speak up about the dishonest practices that are going on in the workplace, I might lose my job. Or somebody who might get the thoughts, my, my life will be wasted if I stay on in this relationship and I, and I don't pursue a divorce. I'm married to a monster. These are the thoughts where somebody might say, you just look like a fool. You just look so weak instead of getting payback, instead of revenge. I mean, all of these thoughts and all the scenarios that I have mentioned, what is powerful enough to crush all of those sinful thoughts? Answer, the word of God. That is what is so powerful. That is the mighty, powerful word that crushes such thoughts that can enter into our minds. It's been so well said. A well-read Bible is the sign of a well-fed soul. It's been well said. A Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. It's been well said, sin will either keep you from the Bible, or the Bible will keep you from sin. So when we hear the word, I mean, when we gather together and the word is read and the word is preached and the word is expounded and the word is is explained, and when that happens, what can we do at the end of the sermon? Like when that old Puritan woman once leaned over to her husband toward the end of the service and she said to her husband, is the sermon done? And the husband whispered, no, it's not done. It's been spoken. It is yet to be done. How do we live it? How do we apply it? How do we do this? How do we go from here and take the word and apply it? I want to suggest for you three questions that you could try to implement in your own life after you hear the word of God read and preached. After you hear the word of God taught, you could even implement it today as we're leaving from here and you're interacting with one another. Number one, what must I confess? Is there something that I've heard in the word of God? Is there something that has been explained in the word of God that I need to confess? Number two, what must I believe? Is there some doctrine in the word that has been expounded? It has been revealed that I need to believe. What must I confess? What must I believe? And then the third question, very simple and practical. What must I do? What do I do in light of what I've heard? In light of what I've heard, I want to change. I want to grow. I I want my heart to be conformed to Christ. I want my mind to be renewed by his word. What must I confess? What must I believe? And what must I do? The word of God always does its work. Always. I love how Isaiah chapter 66 tells us that one of The ways in which the word works is it produces humility. God says, my hand made all these things, meaning the heavens and the earth and the stars and all that is in them, all the things that have come into being. But to this one, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and the one who trembles at my word. 
What does God want and what does the word of God do? It produces humility in us. The word of God, when rightly applied, will produce holiness in us as well. Holiness. The Bible tells us in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God's word produces holiness in his people. Let me give you another way in which the word works in our lives. Not only humility, not only holiness, but it produces happiness. Happiness. I was on a college campus recently and said to the young men and women walking by, man, you just look miserable today. Like all of them. There's there's no smile. There's no joy. There's no happiness. These look like walking zombies. And I said, let me tell you the only place where you can find joy. It's found in Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. That's what God's word does. It points us to God. It points us to Christ. It shows us who he is. It gives happiness. Also, another way that the word of God will always work in the heart of a believer, it will produce a hatred for sin. Remember Paul in Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am. I mean, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And then I do the very evil that I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. What a hatred for sin that God's word produces in us. But also... Let me tell you this, the final H, what does God's word produce in us? It produces a holding onto Christ. We have nowhere to go but to him. Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I in you and apart from me, you can do nothing, John 15, verse 5. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask what you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. What are these unrivaled glories of the Word? What does the Word do? Well, it's living, it's piercing, it's judging. May God's Word produce. Such wonderful and godly and holy attitudes and actions in our life that we would love the Lord and follow him with all of our hearts. I'll close with this. Imagine that you and I were to travel to London together. Imagine that we went to the Royal Botanical Gardens. It's the largest botanical garden in the world, 300 plus acres. 
These marvelous botanical gardens of living trees and flowers and shrubs for observation and for research and for study and for education and for enjoyment. 30,000 different species of plants here at this massive botanical garden. 300 acres of landscapes and gardens and walkways and galleries and lakes and pools. I mean, you could just go on and on and get lost in the beautiful botanical gardens. Imagine that you were walking down this one corridor and, and you go down this pathway and you stop and you study and you, you grab a hold of and you smell and you, and you look at one particular plant. And then you keep going and go down a different corridor and you see a different kind of plant and flower and shrub. And you're stunned and you're, and you're looking and you're gazing and you're smelling the, the beauty of what God has made. Scripture is like that. Scripture is like a garden. In the 300s, there was a preacher named John Chrysostom. He said, Scripture is like a garden. It's like a garden set with all kinds of nuts and flowers and plants. And a godly man delights to walk in this garden and give comfort to himself. He loves every branch and every part of the word of God as he walks down the different corridors and sees the beauty of all of God's word. Church family, may this week... You walk down the different corridors of the Garden of Scripture. Gaze, smell, hold, look, and be stunned by the beauty of God's Word. Know it, read it, study it, memorize it, love it, fear it, and obey it. And God will bless your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that your word shows us not only our sin because it does pierce us deep and it does judge us and criticize our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. So we will glory in our Redeemer. We must look to him. We must trust in him. We have no other hope but to hold on to and cling to Jesus by faith. Thank you that your word not only cuts deep to show us our sin, but thank you that your word is also such that it points us to the glorious Redeemer, the friend of sinners, and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In his name we pray. Amen.